On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to a special edition podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for a terrific conversation on a suddenly relevant topic. Of note, today's podcast has no accompanying article in the journal. My first guest is Dr. Frank Detterbeck, Professor of Surgery and Chief of Thoracic Surgery and Director of Thoracic Oncology at Yale University. Uh, Dr. Detterbeck, thanks for joining us. Well, pleasure to be here. My next guest is Dr. Scott Manneker, Vice Chair of Regulatory Affairs in the Department of Medicine and Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Manneker, thanks for joining us as well. My pleasure. And then we also have um, joining us today Dr. David uh, Yankelovitz. Dr. Uh, Yankelovitz is a professor of radiology and the director of the lung biopsy service at the Mount Sinai Medical Center. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. So, um, gentlemen, I appreciate your time. Let's, let's get going. Um, so, as we all heard, um, CMS decided that approving low-dose screening CTs for lung cancer is not going to be a covered service. Um, could we expand on that? What, do I, what happened? Well, let's try and put that in, in context. I think the national coverage decision is still pending and probably out early next year or, or, or late this year. I think the controversy is by one of their advisory committees, the Medicare Coverage Advisory Committee, which... Sure, did, I did shorthand it the wrong way. Thank you for clarifying. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. You know, it's very complicated and, and confusing and circuitous as we go through the process, but there, there has been a request for a formal coverage decision from Medicare, and, and among many... Uh, individuals and societies and interest groups who get a chance to weigh in. They also have a coverage advisory committee, which gets a chance to weigh in and vote. They review the evidence and weigh the evidence and, and vote. And, and they basically voted that they think more data is necessary before Medicare should cover low-dose screening chest CTs for lung cancer. Uh, that's not necessarily binding or d determinative of what the national coverage decision will be early next year, but it is at the least influential. Is, is there a history that of, can we can we track what this committee suggests? How often the, the final decision you know coincides or or goes the opposite direction? Well, that's a good question I, I, that I do not know the answer to. Frank, to you. I have no idea. But we we have reason to be pessimistic, I guess, in the sense that if the advisory committee suggests no, it you know unless there's enough of an uproar or some other prevailing decision or data, I think we should all those of us that have an interest. No, in but I, I I do know that it's non-binding and that there have been examples um, in the past where uh, where the committee's decision was not uh, not taken. Or the decision, the committee's recommendation. I mean, it, it's it's not a by no means a sure, a sure thing. And then I, I've been told by several people that it's gone the other way on multiple other illnesses and for various things. Something with diabetes, there was some recommendations that were changed at one point. Um, mm -hmm. Well, good. <laughs> Thank you for that's that's good to hear. But the, Scott, as you you just highlighted, the the, the advisory committee's concern was the data. Um, yes. Can we expand on that? I mean, I'm—I'll throw out my bias. I'm—I'm I'm shocked that someone doesn't think we've got good enough or robust enough data. Um, you know, there's no such thing as perfect data, um, but 
One would think that a clinical trial with 50,000 patients randomized right. to 33 institutions would be persuasive. Um, yet wh one of the problems is that there's so many patients in America who could potentially be eligible. Uh, varying estimates in the very sharply detailed criteria of the trial Right. Uh, a range in the 8 to 10 million Americans as a subset of the 90 to 100 million Americans who are former smokers. But only 10% of them would be eligible. Nonetheless, that, that's 10 million patients. They would not all be screened, nor would they have their diagnostic procedures, nor their therapy if diagnosed with lung cancer at prestigious places, academic places like the four of us practice at. They would be seen and screened and potentially treated at places all over America. And I don't know for certain what was in the minds of the committee, but certainly that, that is one major concern uh, that the committee has expressed in the past and, and many have expressed in the literature and in editorials right now. Extrapolation, this wonderful 50,000 patient study to real-world practice at community hospitals all across America. Um, I, I wish, if I were having a lung resection, I could have Frank Detter back doing the resection and David Yankalovich uh, interpreting the films for him, but we're not representative of the physicians all across America. So this is uh, Frank Detterbeck. So I think that there are a couple of, uh, you know, potential concerns. So. One is a, you know, fundamental data concern. You can put it in that category. You know, another is a cost concern. Uh, you know, can society afford it and so forth? And another is perhaps a quality and implementation concern. Uh, I really, I, I was pretty shocked uh, by the, uh, you know, decision of the advisory committee. And I really don't have any insight. I wasn't part of that, and I have no little insight into why they decided that. I think that just to kind of frame the discussion, I think from a fundamental data concern, we've got the NLST, which came out, you know, very clearly showing a, uh, a decrease in lung cancer deaths by screening, at least done in the way that it was done in the NLST. There are a couple of other randomized studies out there, which, uh, Surprisingly, did not seem to trend exactly the same way as the NLST, but they were much, much smaller and really were not powered to show a difference one way or the other. So I don't think that they really, at least in my mind, factor in, you know, strongly uh, to, you know, sort of demote the NLST data. I think the NLST data still stands. Right. You know, the quality and implementation thing is uh, uh, a bit of an issue. So I think that uh, in the NLST, there was a lot of quality control. There were strict selection criteria. There, you know, there was a lot of, uh, well, I think, infrastructure associated with that trial. And there certainly are concerns that, you know, if you try to implement this more broadly, that it's going to be more difficult to, to do that and to duplicate that, and that that might affect the results. Having said that, I must say that I've been very 
pleasantly, you know, surprised or, or, you know, reassured as I look at, you know, what many different uh, places are doing and trying to, you know, set up screening programs. I actually think that they've done it very thoughtfully and very carefully. So I think that some of the some of the people who have said, uh, you know, oh my God, this is a free for all. This is going to be totally abused. I really don't see that happening, except for some maybe some very isolated pockets. I just don't think that's really the case. So I, I also was a bit disappointed with that as a reasoning. I, um, I think you know we presented from. For example, from LCAP, the, as we had about half of our sites were um, what would be called community sites. And, and for the type of information that's necessary um, in terms of harms and in terms of that kind of data can, is the same type of data that you would get from any randomized trial, for example. From, from a trial like LCAP, you just find out the positive rates and the workup rates, et cetera. And, there was no difference between community setting and academic settings, so long as the community settings, for example, all have uh, multidisciplinary teams, et cetera. So I, I didn't, uh, I didn't buy that. And this data was actually presented at the meeting as well and was made available. Um, and this is actually a, a data set that's larger than the NLST. So they could, they that that information is readily available. So I, I don't really buy that. Uh, nor does it fall nor is it uh, really a problem in other types of screening as well. In mammography, um, you know, this can be easily controlled. So I felt that bar was being set unreasonably high um, for the lung cancer screening world. And the NLST, by the way, did not have the kind of controls that people seem to associate with it. It was a very controlled study on the one hand, but the workups were not confined to NLST sites. I mean, workups could be done on the outside there was not a very well standardized protocol, and this is not meant as a knock on the NLST by any stretch. It was, but that's just you know, I think I think you'd find now that the protocols are actually much better defined that are being recommended. There's standardized protocols that are already being set forth by guideline agencies that are much will be much more closely followed, I believe, than what actually happened with the NLST. So I, I don't buy that argument at all. So I have wondered, you know, I I do think that there are many unanswered questions, and there are many refinements that I expect that, you know, we could make if we, you know, continued to do some screening, and I think we've learned a lot of things about what, you know, what works better and what is more efficient and various aspects. But to do that, we need to actually be collecting some data. So this brings up the registry question. Uh, you know, that's certainly been suggested that uh, uh, CMS should set up a registry. Uh, you know, ILCAP certainly has a registry that I think has been very useful uh, that allows us to, uh, to learn things like that. Another issue is, you know, should we have quality metrics that uh, – uh, get looked at uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, we do do this in a careful way. And one of the questions that comes up in my mind is, you know, was this influenced by saying we don't exactly have the infrastructure established to do a registry, we don't have quality metrics defined quite yet, 
let's hold off for a period of time until we can get that a little bit better thought out. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that played a role? I think it did. I think it did, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, I think it's a very important question. I mean, I think we all have this sense that it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to continuously sort of update protocols and uh, learn. But the idea as to whether or not there's sufficient, whether or not this should be making the decision why we would hold back starting implementing screening and holding lung cancer screen, holding it to a different bar than other types of screening. That, to me, was the concern. It was why link the two decisions? Why can't both things be going on simultaneously? Well, let me ask each of you gentlemen a, a different question. I've got, I've got one for each of you because it will reflect some, some considerations that people have in making screening decisions for large populations of people. Frank, one of the observations in the study was outstanding surgical mortality. It was only about 1% in patients in the um, NSLT uh, undergoing surgery. Yet the number that most people use is closer to 3 or 4%. And when looking at risks and benefits and weighing whether or not to proceed, if there's a significant difference in mortality at those 33 places compared to what might occur across the country, that that would factor in into the potential risks and benefits. And then, David, similarly, the technology, as you point out, is changing, has been changing, and whether the newer CT scanners with better resolution would find more true positives or more false positives is another question that people are asking and weighing as these decision-making bodies go forward. I'm wondering what each of you think about those kinds of considerations, surgical mortality and likelihood of finding true or false positives with more modern CT scanners. Well, I'll jump in on that first. Uh, This is Frank. So I do think it's an issue. I mean, I do think that we need to pay attention uh, in the United States to, you know, how we do things. I think that uh, our healthcare system tends to be a little bit uh, disorganized and uh, decentralized, and uh, uh, I think that's not always a good thing, and there's certainly data that you can point to that it makes a difference. Having said that, you know, sometimes people have this idea that if you screen people, you are going to be operating on tons of people, and that's really not the case. You know, if you screen people... Yes, you find lots of little things on the CT that you need to think about, but we have good data that we can think about that carefully and and only intervene on a very small number of people, a very small number of patients, and the vast majority of them really did need an intervention. So I do think that surgical mortality is important, you know, most major societies that have kind of weighed in on screening and different aspects have said that, you know, really thoracoscopy and, and you know, thoracoscopic uh, lung cancer resections, uh, I'm talking about lobectomy, you know, should be part of a screening program. You know, they've kind of addressed this issue somewhat, but I think that it's a little bit, um, you know, it's not that many patients that are going to be 
affected by that that much. So I don't think that that number weighs, you know, dramatically into whether we should be doing screening or not. I agree. I think um, I can tell you that we published our data from LCAP, and it was, I think we, we actually had more screen-detected cancers than we also had the same low surgical mortality rate. I think the less than 1% is, is really about the right number. And uh, I think, you know, this is a different population than the numbers that are sometimes quoted for general surgical mortality. So I I think that really shouldn't be uh, a major issue. It's very low. In terms of the scanners and the scanner quality, that was something I was quite uh, puzzled by. The panels really was very concerned about radiation dose and whatnot, and I felt they didn't really understand the issue about modern technology, nor did they understand how CT scanners worked. So, for example, there was a big concern about that people might be getting too high a dose or, you know, and, and you know, today's scanners, the, they're programmed. I mean, you have a screening protocol and it's programmed in and you press a button. I mean, it's not like each person comes in and you decide a new dose. So it, it and they, they were really unaware of that sort of thing. Um, and similarly, they were unaware that, you know, today's scanners, the doses now are probably about less than half of what was used for NLST. That's decade-old technology already that they're talking about, and there's been a huge focus on dose reduction. So I, I was, uh, I was kind of surprised at how much uh, that was a concern. Do we, do we think that this was? I mean, they, they talked about several different issues, but do you think in the end, I mean, the, the big one sitting right there is cost. That that was that was they didn't want to come out and just say cost too much no, so they gave us some other things that I think we're all, you know, debating here, but the cost one is not that I'm going to take their side, but just for fun, the cost issue is a real one, and given also um, the you know the amount of nodules detected that are going to be benign but are going to lead to follow-up scans or some level of an intervention um, is not a trivial cost. Is that is that really even their charge to be thinking about that this panel? I mean, that I, I don't. Think, I, I, don't I think know. behind I think behind behind the scenes that may very well have been a concern, but I you know that's that bothers me also that that idea because I don't get the sense that they're charged to answer whether it's going to cost Medicare too much or not. I think that they had specific questions that they were charged with answering, and if if what you're suggesting is Correct, um, which it may very well be. Yeah, I'm just a pessimist. Um, that's, a deep, that's, a, <laughs> that's a deep concern. That that's not what they were charged with doing. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know that the cost concern determined the voting. I think the cost concern in everyone's mind emphasizes the importance of the decision. Right. And I believe they made their decision based on the data and the confidence of the estimates that the benefits outweigh the risks. As you mentioned, Kyle, lots of people with other diagnoses than lung cancer are going to be having interventions, are going to be having procedures done, and to the extent 
people are going through screening and undergoing procedures when it's not a diagnosis of lung cancer, that, that all speaks in the risk-benefit balance. And I think those are the considerations, the, um, the, the impact of surgical care uh, and survival, uh, the number of additional procedures that would be done, the likelihood of false positives as opposed to true positives being identified across the country. Um, there was some special radiology uh, training or concordance for participating radiologists that David might want to speak to, whether or not that's easily extrapolatable or requires a certain uh, number of screening CTs to review and, and interpret because volume makes a difference. I think all of those kinds of concerns in extrapolating from a very tightly designed, well-done study to the immense variations in practice across the country all factored into the committee's voting that the data was sufficient at this point in time. But the debate about whether or not we have all of the process in place to make this happen you know, um, is a different discussion than whether or not the data holds true. And, and of course, I think when you start to look at the safety side from the data, much like any other form of, of a screen, we, you know, every screen for a malignancy already presumes some level of complication, you know, perf from a colonoscopy or, sure. you know, unneeded biopsy from a mammogram, et cetera. You know, the, there's a background of this that's always going to occur. Um, it just, it seems to me um, that the decision based on, well, we don't have all of the perfect infrastructure in place to allow this to occur, you know, flawlessly, um, or or that everybody will do a low-dose CT exactly correct and that every workup will be perfect. Um, I, I wonder, though, that that infrastructure starts to develop and get built when hospitals can afford to build that, and that partly comes from being reimbursed. And I don't do mammography, obviously, but I wonder, at, or, you know, screening colonoscopies, but as all of that came online going back a few years, um, was every ounce of the apparatus in place when, when these uh, became formalized components to primary care? Or was it finally once we had the ability that, hey, I did a screening colonoscopy, the medical center will get paid for it, therefore we will continue to build this infrastructure to solidify our ability to take care of these patients? Well, I think it's more of the latter, you know, and certainly, uh, as I understand it, for mammography, that, uh, you know, the metrics that are now kind of in place for that, uh, they certainly were not in place to start with, and it was a matter of evolution. Uh, I can see that one might say, okay, well, let's learn some lessons, and let's not, uh, you know, let it... Uh, uh, start out in a bad way and then try to make it better. Let's try to make it good from the get-go. But to me, that would be, you know, that implementation decision would be more a matter of, you know, yes, we think the data supports screening. We should pay for it, but we should develop the infrastructure as we do it or something of that nature. It shouldn't be a matter of, 
you know, we don't think that uh, screening is ready to go. I agree with you. Um, I also am wondering, you know, this, this concept of registry keeps coming up, and I, I think registries are wonderful things, but I don't know exactly what people are referring to when they say we need to have a registry. I, I, you know, is it a registry that every person screened at every hospital would be required to submit their data to a single registry? I mean, what are we talking about, and why? What kind of a standard? I, 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 you know, I really don't know what that means. Even, um, you know, I think the idea that there'll be potentially several registries, you know, and different major academic organizations or healthcare organizations will certainly want to set up registries, and you know, that's you know, and they'll all publish their data, et cetera. But I, I I'm not, uh, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of sort of making this broad claim that Medicare will set up a registry in some way and everybody, and then holding lung cancer to that standard where it doesn't exist anywhere else, I think would be a serious mistake. Well, let me ask a, a question based on some prior uh, coverage precedents. Certainly, uh, implantable cardiac defibrillators were approved, very expensive devices, very expensive technology. They were initially approved for a very narrow indication for a very small population, and, and over 10 years, the, the standards, the requirements for implantable defibrillators uh, widened such that many more patients with a variety of conditions, pro prolonged QRSs, um, low ejection fractions who met the criteria could have implantable defibrillators, and similarly, uh, you both will probably recall the, the bad old days when PET scans were very difficult to obtain for patients. And then over time, the, the requirements loosened, and it was easier to obtain PET scans for patients, even prior to a biopsy proving a malignant diagnosis. One of the things that has evolved following the initial publication of the NLST were a several papers looking at mathematical modeling, trying to identify additional criteria to both increase the false positives and decrease the number of patients that would need to be screened in order to provide benefit. How do you to feel about the notion of a more limited approval, a more limited coverage decision with the notion that some type of modeling to identify additional risk factors and criteria to reduce the number needing to be screened, improve the yield of the, of the true positives, and, and have that become part of the evidence base for perhaps widening the criteria over time? I have some very strong feelings about that that I could be happy to share, which is that First, I think what, what should be understood and I, I think is very seriously misunderstood is what is it that the NLST actually tells the world? Um, and, you know, people are talking about that we know the benefit and, you know, I think that uh, NLST result has been very, very seriously misrepresented in terms of that 20% mortality reduction. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that four out of five people will still die which is what's commonly being said, um, NLST was stopped when it reached its stopping point. That doesn't mean that that's the magnitude of the benefit. It was never meant to show that. It was meant to show that you could 
you know, to reject the null hypothesis in all essence. Um, many more people will be saved. And so what NLST really tells the world is that finding early lung cancer and curing it is better than finding late lung cancer and trying to cure it. And so there's every reason to believe. For, so, for example, the committee has as one of their questions, do we have evidence that screening beyond three rounds is of value? I say the answer is the question belies, I think, a serious misunderstanding of what the NLST showed. Right. It's that sort of thing that I think is so seriously misunderstood, and even by major organizations that are talking about screening. So is it beneficial for an older population beyond the NLST? My answer is absolutely. It's just a question, and the modeling is, I think, you know, fairly simple to show. I mean, you just need to understand the risks and something about life expectancy, but it's, to me the answers for these things are very obvious. The answer is yes, you should be screening you know, a healthy 75-year-old or 76-year-old. I have no doubt about that. And similarly, should you screen beyond three years? The answer is obviously yes. You should be doing annual screening. I have no, and then the NLST data by every presumption uh, shows that had it been interpreted properly. I think this is a very serious misunderstanding about NLST. It's not like we stopped doing mammograms just because your next three were negative. I mean, it's like it would be like saying that uh, the NLST only proved that three rounds are good. What about two rounds or one round? Is that not proven? <laughs> I mean, or is four? I mean, I mean, this is what. But this is what's being said. We should only screen three rounds and stop. Now that 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 the Medicare was asking that question. I think is, you know, really kind of astounding that that's the way they're interpreting NLST. And I think that's a, a, an absolute incredible mistake. So, David, let me ask you a, a slightly different angle on that. So, you know, one you know, question may be, okay, was it because the data was misunderstood and, and you know, kind of in the direction that you're talking about? I also wonder, though, if, uh, you know, it seems that so much of what we do is driven by, you know, perception and fashion and, you know, sort of other things rather than actual data. And it seems to me that we are in an era where we are questioning the value of screening uh, more than we have in the past. So at one point in the past, they, you know, was considered, well, why would anyone even question that at all? It's, it's always good and so forth. And, and we certainly have learned that, you know, you can pick up, uh, you know, have a positive PSA, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you should do anything about it. You have to think about, is this a prostate cancer that we should do something about or not? And so, you know, there certainly is a perception out there that, you know, screening doesn't always pick up things that you really need to react to, and, you know, maybe sometimes you overdo it, and, and the pendulum, I think, has swung a little bit to say, well, maybe screening isn't always good, and I wonder if, you know, some of the sentiments aren't driven by just sort of a, I don't know, momentum of the pendulum rather than actual rational examination of the data. I actually think there's no question that that's what's happening here. But I, I think that, you know, when, when you do a study like NLST, 
Um, I mean, this was a major, you know, effort and a monumental achievement. Um, it needs to be understood what it is it actually showed, you know, because I mean, here you have a committee that's evaluating, you know, trying to balance risk versus benefit, and 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 in order to do that, really the first thing you need to know is what is the benefit, and I just say, as strongly as I can, NLST was not about quantifying the benefit. They never set out to show you the, what the potential magnitude of benefit was. It's not designed to do that, nor could it do that. They had an idea when they started of what might be useful to show, and when it reached that, they had to stop it for all ethical reasons. But they've never shown what the benefit is, um, you know, the full extent. And uh, I suggest that it is substantially higher than this 20%. In fact, it has to be. It, it, NLST will always seriously underestimate. That type of trial always underestimates the value. In terms of all those other questions, they are the critical questions. I, I agree with you. We, we need to quantify that, but that no longer needs to be done in the context of randomized trials. The questions that you're asking about how frequently will we find false positives and how do we manage them, those kind of things, I think, are all very, very answerable. And in fact, if you look at the data that's already out there, I think all those questions mm -hmm. can be answered probably more seriously for lung cancer screening than any other type of screening. So I, well, I think I that agree. kind of data can be put together. I mean, those are the critical questions, I agree. But very first point is what is the benefit associated with it and what is it that NLST actually shows us? So to me, that's a very important question. I think the committee really got that wrong. So many of our listeners might be in the, you know, having anticipated that this was going to be a, a committee that suggested yes and had probably been in the uh, starting the workings for having a lung cancer screening program at their medical center, wherever that may be. What uh, what general advice should we be giving our colleagues uh, with this decision coming down uh, in regards to building their their infrastructure within their medical center for a lung cancer screening program? Well, I. I my view is that, uh, you know, they need to set up multidisciplinary teams. There are some very good guidelines out there from the different organizations that talk about uh, what needs to be done. I think um, uh, I think the NCCN has some very good guidelines. ACCP has written some good guidelines. Um, there's the Lung Cancer Alliance has uh, their framework for what they recommend. Um, I think the most important thing from my point of view is that, uh, that that you set up multidisciplinary teams that really, you know, take this all very seriously and interact. I think that's really the, the critical aspect of this. That's my view. Well, Gentlemen, anything else to add? This is uh, Frank. So I think that it's, uh, it's hard to know what to say. I think that we don't, you know, I at least have this feeling that, you know, I don't really understand the committee's decision. I think that there is more, there certainly is discussion that is evolving, uh, you know, in the wake of this decision. And I think that we have to see a little bit how it, uh, you know, really plays out. Certainly, if I were, uh, you know, a hospital administrator that was uh, thinking about uh, or a team of, uh, 
you know, multidisciplinary team thinking about setting up a screening program, I would uh, kind of pause and take a couple of deep breaths and uh, sort of see how things evolve a little bit. Having said that, uh, you know, we have a screening program. We continue to uh, uh, screen because I really fully believe it's the right thing to do. And uh, I think that those programs, those hospitals that are, you know, well on their way to setting up a program, I wouldn't tell them to stop. I still think it's the right thing to do. And I I guess I, uh, I mean, you certainly can see what my, my interpretation of, of the data and everything is, is that uh, I think that it's the right thing to do. And I think that, yes, this decision surprises me. Does this is this really going to mean that we are going to abandon lung cancer screening altogether? I have a hard time seeing how that will happen. Uh, Exactly how it will evolve, I am not sure, but I have a hard time seeing that this means that, you know, we are going to abandon screening for lung cancer altogether. And once again, I would just say that although there is there are concerns about, you know, can we implement this well and do we have the tools and the infrastructure and whatnot and, you know, is there at least some potential that uh, there might be some downsides and all of that is true. But we know, you know, we, we have seen from so many, you know, well-organized programs um, part of NLST, ILCAP, uh, you know, and many other programs that this can be done well and can be done in a way that you are not doing a lot of extra scans with a lot of extra radiation or a lot of biopsies. You're doing, you know, a minimal number of interventions kind of in those people that really need it. So we, we've seen time and time again that when it's well-organized, that we can do this well, and I have a hard time seeing how that's going to just go by the wayside. I think you hit the hit it on the head there, Frank. Uh, I, I agree. I think I think the way it was presented was that this could roll out and be a disaster, and you know people will just be you know screening the wrong way and by and then that is a concern. You know, how does this get rolled out so that every hospital just doesn't set up and start? You know. Grabbing uh, people off the street and scanning them. <laughs> yeah, and offering, you know, uh, whatever, you know, some some deal or something. And I think the the rollout is really the the should be the concern and the consideration. And, and I think you know that needs to be carefully planned. I think the questions around it really have been answered. That this this can work and it's worked in multiple settings and the evidence is there. The question to me is really. How do you roll this out, you know, responsibly? And, you know, and that, I think, could be set up. I mean, it's been done in other areas very well. I don't see why they're trying to set a different bar for for lung cancer. Well, let's, let's just quickly address the, the politics then of this. Um, you know, lung cancer has always suffered from a lack of a visible spokesperson, if you will, or enough visible organizations raising money, 5K runs. I mean, you know, versus the opposite example of breast cancer, which is extremely well-organized and high-profile and fundraising and, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, is it, is it 
do you think there's a bias? I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to show. <laughs> well, I'll just put, put my cards down. I think there is a bias, and I think, you know, we all know this. Lung cancer suffers a, a horrible bias as a disease state compared to others. And um, I, I wonder if that's partly what we're also up against uh, in, in this setting. Yeah, that's frank. I actually, although I certainly agree that there's a, you know, horrible bias and that, you know, we we have to overcome that. We've struggled to overcome it. I mean, you know, most of the people that are diagnosed with lung cancer today are people that quit smoking, you know, decades ago and, and you know, so forth. And yet we tend to always blame the people that, uh, you know, got lung cancer that it's their own fault. Uh, we have to get over that. But I think that it's more of a more of the pendulum sort of swinging a bit saying, you know, maybe we need to be a little bit more thoughtful about, you know, when we screen and how we screen. And, and you know, to me that pendulum doesn't mean that we should say we don't have the data to screen for lung cancer. It might mean that we should be careful about how we screen for lung cancer, but right. we know we can right. do it carefully. But I think it's that sort of pendulum swinging and, and being a little less... Uh, I don't know, enthusiastic about embracing screening, that that is the bigger factor rather than lung cancer specifically as opposed to, say, breast cancer. Well, there's no question breast cancer is uh, somewhat under attack these days also, uh, as other cancers are in terms of... But, I mean, I, I don't think it's an either-or. I think, you know, it's just a, you're just deciding the magnitude of, of which one. I think I think there is a bias against, you know, lung, I mean, it's been there all along. I mean, even right. starting the trial, you know, starting the various trials and, you know, f amount of funding available, for, you know, has always been a problem. I think it's for the reason you said. But I also agree that the other aspect is coming into place. Screening in general is being looked at more carefully and, you know, and part of that has to do with the available resources and people are more concerned with things like false positives and, uh, you know, overdiagnosis and, uh, over treatment, that sort of thing. So, I mean, they're important considerations, but uh, right. I, I think there is clearly some issue, some some level of both of these things involved. Yeah, and, and although it can be described as a swinging pendulum, another interpretation or description would be learning from lessons of the past, where large-scale screening trials in subsequent years after guidelines were approved revealed differences. Frank mentioned PSAs as, as one example, but, but one example of where guidelines for screening and came into question years later when more data were available. Similar questions are now being asked about various types of colorectal cancer screening and whether the current guidelines are appropriate or not, particularly as new technologies come out. These are, these are complicated decisions. I think that's a nice way to frame it. I, uh, I wanted to be respectful of people's time, and we've been talking for a while, so what I wanted to give each of you an opportunity um, is, is there anything finally wanted to add? I think Scott just put a nice uh, summary there together, but you can add more if you want to, Scott. <laughs> I'll just say stay tuned. I, I think this is a heart-wrenching issue for, yeah. for many. Uh, physicians, patients, their families. It's its just heart-wrenching, and I think everyone should stay tuned and be thoughtful. 
as people weigh in on different sides of the issue, and the coverage group will ultimately make their decision one way or another, and we'll all learn of it uh, sometime in this next year. David or Frank? Oh, my only thought on this is that I, I think lung cancer uh, can be made a curable disease now. And uh, I, I really just would like to see um, the committee uh, think more, or Medicare really think more about how to roll this out uh, in a responsible way. I think the idea of whether or not it should be done, uh, to me, is answered. Um, it's just a matter of how to, how to roll this out effectively. Um, and, and develop a, an infrastructure that you know, ultimately can help to minimize the harms around this. That, to me, is the critical question. Oh, this is Frank. So I I agree with that. I think that uh, you know implementation is the only piece that uh, you know we we haven't done quite as broadly. But having said that. You know, we have done it in so many different places. There were, you know, many NLST sites. There's many IELCAP sites. There's, uh, you know, the the Mayo screening study. There's, you know, there's so many places that, you know, have put together thoughtful screening programs and have all come up with pretty consistent results, you know, and have done it well. So we, we know we can do it well uh, if we put together a thoughtful program and I think that's, you know, that's, uh, that's the only question. You know, we know we can do it well. Um, you know, we just need to figure out how to do it a little bit more broadly. But uh, I don't see how that should mean we're going to abandon it altogether. And so I would agree with Scott that I think that uh, we need to stay tuned as to how this really plays out in the longer run, slightly longer run. Terrific. Guys, thanks so much for your time. This was this was great. This is what we were hoping to have, a, a thoughtful discussion about, you know, uh, for our listeners on, on, on the issues that are at hand and, and sort of our response to, you know, the news and, and how to think about it and give us some framework. So I really appreciate it. Well, thank thanks you, Kyle. You're welcome.